Hey everyone, welcome to the OFD Bookcast. I'm your host, Joshua Bowles, Site Manager, Emperor, Supreme Warlord, and Defender of the Faith over at OneFootDown.com on the SB Nation Network. And we are continuing our journey with the Notre Dame's Greatest Coaches book, uh, written by Stephen Singular and Mr. Notre Dame, uh, Moose Krause. <clears throat> I gotta be totally up front with you guys. I recorded this uh, yesterday, so whatever day you get this, think back two days, whatever. Uh, but uh, I did a first recording, and I just thought it was crap. I thought it was a, a terrible, I, I put forth a terrible product. And I just, I was like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. I'm going to delete that, which it had to been pretty bad. If you know me, that's pretty bad. So I just went to do it a second time, got about three quarters of the way through, and I, I mean, I just was not feeling it. I just felt uh, I caught myself getting in, into the same word traps, uh, and uh, I, I didn't like it, so I got rid of that. Now, I, I want to to move forward, and I'm just, I guess maybe because I'm bored with the, uh, not bored, but I mean, I'm, I had two recordings that went south, and so I, I want to stay away from from the same phrases I was using and all that. So I just got a little something different for today. So we're going to cover chapters 12, 13, and 14. Uh, and more specifically, 12 and 14. Uh, I'm just going to flat out read these chapters. Uh, chapter 13, I, I, I'm just going to leave alone. It is, uh, it really is just all about um, Moose's wife, Elise, her car accident, uh, which left her uh, with some brain damage and all that. It's it's a very good chapter. I highly encourage you to read it if you have this book. Um, it explains a lot about Moose's mindset and what really drove him into the dark abyss of his uh, alcoholism and, you know, the fact that Arrow was uh, the person that was there for Moose. And so, you know, it, that's a, it's a very important part of it. But for this, uh, for my purposes here, I... I'm putting, I want to put Era in the spotlight here a little bit. And we're showing the intensity, the drive, the will, the determination of, of Era Parsegian and, and him wanting to win. And I think these two chapters do um, somewhat justice. Again, this is a, this is not a very well written book. Um, and so they're, they're or, or was it uh, very well edited? Um, but uh, I think it does a pretty decent job of um, uh, of putting out what kind of person Era was in regards to uh, being a football coach. So bear with me. Um, I, I'm hoping this will go all right. I'm just going to read these chapters, and then uh, then I'll be able to move forward the next time. Hopefully, like I say a lot of times, I hope that the in between the episodes doesn't take so long. Um, maybe there's a lot, a little bit more of a fire under my ass. Uh, so let's, let's give it a go. Chapter 12, the Armedian Protestant. <clears throat> when Moose genuinely liked an Notre Dame coach, he had complete faith in him. Others might carp at the man or question his gridiron judgment, but Moose did not. It was like a good working marriage. The relationship between the athletic director and his football coach was far more important than the one incident or even one game. And Moose trusted that the decisions the coach made were for the good of the team and the school itself. By far the most notorious and criticized event of Eric Parsegian's Notre Dame career 
was the famous 10-10 tie against Michigan State in 1966. Many people felt he should have gone for broke at the end of the game and attempted anything to win. Countless articles and an entire book entitled The Biggest Game of Them All by Mike Seltzik have been written about this one contest. And yet, when people inside the Irish football program look back on those years, another game is mentioned more often. It occurred in 1964. Not only Procedian's first year in South Bend, but also the year that followed the 2-7 and seven campaign under Hugh DeVore. In the final game of that season, the undefeated Irish, 9-0 and ranked number one, traveled to Los Angeles to play the USC Trojans. Notre Dame was leading 17-0 at halftime, and before sending the team back onto the field for the last two quarters, Procedian asked the Irish to give him just 30 more minutes of football, which would bring them a perfect year and a national title. After USC scored to make it 17-7, the Irish answered with an apparent touchdown of their own early in the fourth quarter on a one-yard plunge, but an official called illegal use of hands on tackle Bob Meeker. The points were nullified, and Notre Dame failed to score again. Southern Cal threw two touchdown passes, two passes for touchdowns, the last one coming with 133 left in the game. And the Irish's undefeated season and national championship dream were gone. Parsegian was named the American Football Coaches Association Co-Coach of the Year, along with Arkansas's Frank Broyles, and the NCAA Statistical Bureau designated Notre Dame's rebound from 2-7 to 9-1 as the greatest comeback season in history. And yet, that 17-0 lead had gotten away. <clears throat> Sometimes lost in this criticism surrounding the 1966 Michigan State tie is that the Irish went on to win the national championship that season. What people like Moose Krause recall first about that year is that the head coach's strategy worked and the title came back to South Bend after an absence of 17 years. What hasn't been forgotten at the school, or in some cases forgiven, was the holding penalty against Bob Meeker in the 1964 USC game. According to many Irish supporters, that was a bad call because linemen are rarely flagged for such things in a short yardage situations, and the infraction remains a vivid memory around Notre Dame Athletic Department, where one still hears grumblings about those last damn 93 seconds. We had the championship won in Era's very first year, says Moose. Except for a minute and a half, we were that close, except for Meeker. <clears throat> in sports, you tend to remember most deeply the game that broke your heart, and certain people's names in inevitably become associated with one dismal event, regardless of how many good things they may have done over the years. Every baseball fan recalls the ground ball that went through Bill Buckner's legs in the last inning of the sixth game of the 1986 World Series, which cost Boston the game. Most would say the series against the New York Mets. How many good plays did Buckner make for the Red Sox that year? Bob Beaker's name rarely comes up in a discussion of Notre Dame football except for one moment in 1964. Nearly three decades later, that season isn't broached in Moose's office without the old athletic director frowning and shaking his head. I can't believe they called that on him, Moose says. I used to teach guys how to block. See, his hands were up here near his chest where they're supposed to be, and he was driving his man backwards and doing all the things you're supposed to do. And it was just lousy. I knew this guy named Huey Mulligan, the head of the Plastering Institute in Chicago, a big organization. After we hired Ari, he called me and said, Why didn't you give Notre Dame why didn't you get a Notre Dame man instead of a Protestant like that? Arrow won his first game and then his second and then his third. Toward the end of the sixty-four season, Huey called me up and said, That Protestant's pretty good. The way he's going, maybe we can convert him to Catholicism. I said, The way he's going, we might have to join his church. Procedian has white hair now, a little paunch, and he walks with something of a limp. Bad knees and hips seem to follow good football careers. He was a player before he coached. His eyes are still fierce, and his head looks as if it was ready to be carved into Mount Rushmore. His intensity remains palpable. 
Rockney could pace himself, Moose says. Leahy and Era never learned how to do that. They just couldn't. When you sit across from his desk at Era Partigian Enterprises, a company in downtown South Bend that insures automobile, mortgage, or commercial loans, you feel something coming at you, a sort of electric buzz. And after a while, you understand it's what the man radiates. He has a quick, rather shy smile, and his voice retains its rusty edge. For some reason, it's surprising to see that Procedian has gotten older. You don't expect it of certain people. When he arrived at Notre Dame, he was a relatively young coach, and Moose was a middle-aged administrator. But by 1992, they seemed almost like contemporaries. Two aging men with sore legs. Men who no longer coach football or make a living at it, but talk with fervor about the past. Watching the two of them together during one of Moose's visits to Procedian's office and listening to the competitiveness that still drives their language, you wonder what would have become of them without football. Where would the intensity have gone? The profound desire to win, the physical urges, the need to test themselves against other men. Through all their words seemed to float a sense of recognition and gratitude that the game itself gave them a life nothing else could have. Parsegian's office holds memorabilia, plaques outlining his achievements, including his entrances into the College Football Hall of Fame, Sports Illustrated covers featuring Irish players, old pigskins with scores painted on them, a pair of longhorns, a memento of a Cotton Bowl victory over the University of Texas, an award be- for being the 1966 Sporting News Coach of the Year, and a desk weight that reads, Coach Era Parsegian. <clears throat> the man does not like to talk about individuals whom he coached, and when he doesn't want to do something, it doesn't get done. When Moose asked about his best offensive and defensive player in his 11 years in Notre Dame, he shrugs and says, they were all good. He isn't so reticent when, he talk, when talking about his former athletic director. We had the finest relationship you could ever have, he says, looking at the older man and nodding. We never fought about anything. Moose interrupts to ask if he can smoke in Parsegian's office, a formality he doesn't find necessary in restaurants or other public places. Sure, go ahead, Parsegian says. I was very excitable when I was coaching, and Moose had a steady in hand. There was always a fire in the head coach's chair, and Moose was there for me. The job had tremendous pressure. I would constantly get calls before games from New York and Los Angeles and Atlanta and Philadelphia. Holy moly, I couldn't believe it. The first day I came onto campus and drove up the avenue that takes you to the Golden Dome, a charge went up my back. I remember what Rockney had done and what Leahy had done, and I knew what I was responsible for. Coaching here, there were always so many criticisms against you and everything was black and white. A lot of it disturbed me. Moose helped me because he knew this would happen and prepared me for it a little. I love the son of a gun, Moose said, excelling a long feather of smoke. It was good for me to be able to talk to someone who represents the history of Notre Dame the, the way Moose does, someone who had seen ups and downs and knew there was a tomorrow. Everything got harder the longer I was a head coach, not easier. When Lou Holtz was hired at Notre Dame, I tried to tell him this would happen to him, but he didn't understand me. He will. He will. The pressure becomes more intense when you win than when you lose. My goal was to be perfect. And if you can win a national championship and have a perfect season, you can't improve on that. But you can sure as hell go down. Moose didn't criticize me. He never talked behind my back or was influenced by the alumni. He was at his most supportive when we lost. He'd come and eat breakfast with me the next day and try to calm me down. That was pretty hard to do, Moose says. He once asked me to take a leave of absence so I could get away from football for a year and rest. But I couldn't do that. I already made up my mind to retire. Then he said, look, I want you to stay and I'll step aside as athletic director so you can have my job. How many ADs would do that? I didn't want to lose you, Moose says. Being a head coach was lonely. You don't want to share 
things with your staff or your family. So I talked to Moose. I didn't tell him everything, but I told him some, and I needed that. Yeah, Moose nods and blows another trail of smoke. When you're the coach, it's very important to recognize what you have on your team and to play people when they can do their best. I moved a number of guys around. I had personnel boards, and every day after practice, my assistant coaches and I would go to these boards and study in them and talk about every player and how they were doing and if they were at the right position. Our quarterback, John Hoover, didn't even expect to play in 1964, and he won the Heisman Trophy that year and took, took us within a minute and a half of a national championship. That's a great story. I told him before his first game against Wisconsin, I don't care if you throw five interceptions, you're my quarterback. I was a great believer in him. The worst thing you can do to some people is kick them in the ass. Parsegi leans back in his chair, locks his fingers behind his head, and looks out a large window that gives onto a cold, blue, transparent October morning in the modest skyline of South Bend. He chuckles as, as if to himself, if Meeker had gotten that call at the end of the game, we would have been champions. The old athletic director grunts in agreement. How long have you been at Notre Dame now, Moose? Oh, hell, Krauss says. I don't know, I'm almost 80. Well, I'm 69, per- nice, Parsegian says, pointing to Moose. When I turned 60, the SOB put a big sign out in the parking lot that said, Era 60. Moose laughs in memory. You playing golf today? Nah, my legs hurt. Yeah, mine too. Parsegian stands behind his desk and moves slowly across the room. When he glances at you, you get the feeling that he's about to tell you to go block someone. Look at you, Moose says to the ex-coach. You walk just like a duck. So do you. They clap their hands on each other's shoulders and shuffle toward the hall. Parsegian smiles and says, You only made one mistake in your life. What's that? You kept that little guy working for you. Moose sighs deeply. Oh yeah, you mean the colonel. You're right about that. On any given morning, ex-coaches or football players drift in and out of two small athletic department offices occupied by Moose and Colonel Stevens. One morning, Joe Yanto came by and sat down in the chair opposite Moose Tess. Yanto had played and coached under Leahy before becoming an assistant under Parsegian. In terms of football knowledge, Air and Leahy were equal, Yanto said. But Air had it all, all over Leahy in terms of personality. He was much more outgoing, effervescent. Leahy was rigid. If I had to choose, it would be Era. Both of them would be were highly organized, regimented perfectionists. Era's 7 a.m. meeting started at a quarter of 7. That was Era's time, and being late was not possible. Both coaches worked on little things, things you wouldn't even think of, fundamentals, like a basic stance on the field or the proper way of holding a football or how to use your arms when tackling or how to carry the ball when you're running or the best way to fall down and maintain your leverage or how to recover a fumble. They worked on these things endlessly. Things you wouldn't think that college football players would know, but a lot of them don't. Another day, Wally Moore dropped in. Moore, who came to Notre Dame as Parcheesian's freshman coach in 1966, is short and round and does not at first strike you as being a football man. Not until he jumps out of his chair and moves his office and starts blocking the furniture. Many things come to mind around Moore. For one, it's easy to get the impression from watching football on television or even in person that you know something about the game. TV commentary like to talk about stunts and nickel packages in the red zone, and after a while you start to feel that you can keep up with them. It's only when you encounter people like Moore that you realize how mu- much thinking, rethinking, planning, and refining has gone into the game over the years. It makes you wonder how Rockney and Leahy and the other gridiron pioneers will look upon football today. Another thing that comes to mind when talking to Moore, the football viewing public often seem upset or even shocked when there's a blow up on the sideline and a coach yells at one of his players. The player might even scream back, especially if he's in the pros and has a long-term contract. 
What's surprising is not that this occurs, but that it doesn't happen a lot more or doesn't occasionally get physical. Few sports are more driven by emotion and violence than football, yet few of them demand more self-control. You must attack, but at precisely the right time and in exactly the right way. Some of the emotions underlying football have fundamentally dark edges having to do with one man trying to dominate or punish another. That must be why this game, more than any other, has produced several great orators who could stir men's viscera before sending them into battle. You can't ask people to make sacrifices in a whisper. You can't ask them to bang heads politely. You can't ask young players to walk out onto a field, sometimes in miserable weather, and give every ounce of strength and stamina they have without expecting a little conflict once in a while. We watch the game because it's harsh and because it shows us that some people have more physical skills and physical courage than others. As my freshman coach, Moore said in Moose's office, I was sent out to scout our varsity opponent two weeks down the road. My first year, we were undefeated. But people always told me that if we lost, Arrow would turn into a raving maniac and, and to stay out of his way. The next year, we lost to Purdue, and when I returned from scouting work, I was afraid of entering this madman situation back home. On Monday morning, we always had to be in our chairs by 7 a.m. for Arrow's first meeting of the week. He was usually early, but this morning he was about five minutes late. No one says anything to him. We're all sitting there waiting, worried, keeping our eyes on him. He doesn't say anything. Total silence in the room. Everyone is really starting to get nervous. Then he looks at one of our defensive coaches and says, Why did we lose that game? The coach gives his reasons for the defeat, and Eric doesn't make any response. He goes around the room and asks all nine coaches for their explanations. Then it gets real quiet again, and we're all waiting for the bomb. He tells us that he really appreciates our thoughts this morning, but here's why we lost the game. He writes very carefully on a blackboard seven reasons for defeat. Boom, 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 one right after the other. All very neat and orderly. He says we're going to correct each of these things starting now. He was totally analytical and organized, totally comfortable with what he was doing. No raving at all on his part. Never raised his voice during the entire meeting. When a coach is out of control and he feels, and feels he's going to get beat, the players pick up on that. And they do get beat. Arrow wanted to know everything that was going on. He always called the plays from the sidelines and did it by holding a card and moving around at various parts of his body. At the Friday practices before games, the press would come out and interview him. He'd hold the card and look right at a reporter. And as he was answering his question, he announced that what play the team was going to run next. Then they would run it. The reporters were amazed. They had no idea what he was doing. How'd you do that? They asked him. He would never tell them. He did all this to put himself in an artificial pressure pressure situation where he had to do several things at once so he could make sure that he never choked during a game. He'd do the same thing with his players. When Bob Thomas was being broken in as our kicker, Arrow would stand beside him and was practicing and throwing a cap at his feet or walk right in front of him as he was attempting a field goal, anything to distract him and prepare him for what was coming on Saturday. Arrow devised the most unusual cadence system in football. One quarterback was always taught to scan the defense before putting his hands under the center to receive the ball. Then he never used numbers when calling the signals, just words. The word ready can mean go right or go left. It can mean a certain blocking pattern or a specific pass route. The meaning of that one word depended on what play had just been called in the huddle. Ready told the line how to block. The receivers, where to run, and the backs what to do. In practice, we worked on these things thousands of times. Drove me up a tree. Era wanted a plays that could not be denied. He was always in a state of flux, constantly changing things, never satisfied. 
He was the greatest tactician I've ever seen. In 1974, we didn't have any defensive ends, so we put Steve Ninyaus there. He had a reputation as a great defensive player, but he wasn't an end. We spoofed the whole nation that year, and no one ran Ninyaus because they thought he was good. Era always said, don't worry about making touchdowns, make first downs. That sounds like a very simple thing, but it isn't. I've seen team after team go for long scores when all they needed is a first down to keep the ball in their possession. Harris said, if you just make the first downs, the touchdowns will come. At the 1973 Sugar Bowl, we played Alabama for the national title. I was standing out in the field during one of our practices at Tulane Stadium. I'm five feet seven, and when I looked at one of the goalposts, my eye level was right in line with it. It was supposed to be 10 feet tall. When I looked at the other goalposts, my head was over the crossbar. That night, I walked all over New Orleans looking for a string on a carpenter's level. I've always been a frustrated carpenter. When I found those things, I went back to the stadium in the dark and secured the string on the 50-yard line. I walked down to the goalpost, and when I discovered that one end zone was 12 inches lower than the other, a punter standing back there was four feet lower than some parts of the field and kicking uphill. I told Arrow what I discovered, and we based our kicking strategy on this information. We won the game in the championship, 24-23. to One other thing that came to mind while listening to Moore. Something that had surfaced before when hearing other players talk about their experiences with Rockney or Leahy or Procedian, experience that went back decades, yet were still extremely vivid to those telling the stories. This particular thing was much more subtle and elusive than other thoughts Moore had evoked. It didn't even necessarily have a name and may have existed only in the realm of feeling art or intuition. It had to do with the sense that all of the ex-players had been speaking about something that included football but went a, a little beyond the game itself. It had to do with competitiveness and perhaps being male, and it touched upon the subject of violence. Why did some people enjoy playing football so much, and why did many others enjoy watching it? What need was it really fulfilling? Why was so much attention paid to athletes, and what was the envy that at least certain people felt for them? These questions could have been stirred up while visiting any college with a major football program, but in fact, they came from being at Notre Dame, a religious institution. You almost cannot visit the campus without being aware of its history as a Catholic school and without encountering a lot of Christian imagery. It's in the public sculpture, in the architecture, and it pervades the walls of the Sacred Heart Basilica. The images conjure up the journey of Christ from the cradle to the crucifixion. The university, unlike so many other places in our society, can easily cause you to think about spiritual matters, regardless of your religious orientation. It provides a context for this activity. Notre Dame feels surprisingly non-denominational, yet when you're there, you find yourself wondering about such things as good and evil, the nature of sin and redemption, the enormous suffering that has been and remains, a part of the human experience. You think about what people have been and what they are now and what they might become. You think about the light that surrounds Our Lady of the Golden Dome on Sunday mornings and about the darkness that follows us everywhere. And somehow at Notre Dame, all these things become entwined, the football and the religion together. Of course, there are many jokes made about this entwining and many comments about Touchdown Jesus, the huge mural on the campus administration buildings that depicts Christ with his arms upraised, as if someone had just plunged into the end zone and scored. Touchdown Jesus generates a lot of laughter, but not everything surrounding the subject is humorous. The most striking thing about football is that young men choose to go out and punish themselves and one another. They choose the pain, the sacrifice, the hardships, and the risk of serious injury, or even in very rare cases, death. They might eventually earn big money from the sport and considerable fame, but if you ever played football, you know that the distant promise of those things isn't enough to send you into the fray. 
The appeal is more mysterious. Young men enter violence of the gridiron for vaguer reasons. Perhaps in time, those things would reveal a little more of themselves, and some of the questions could be answered. Wally Moore, who went on to coach the varsity offensive line under procedure, was still talking. It was Arrow who coined the phrase, hard work isn't easy. Boy, did we work on blocking. You can count on your hands the number of times our quarterbacks were sacked. We taught our linemen not to block the defense, but to... He leapt up and assumed a blocking stance near Moose's desk. Knees bent, back stooped, eyes focused on, ima- on an imaginary opponent. <clears throat> he looked 20 years younger. He looked mean. He pivoted one way and the other, swinging his wide body around the small space. His forearms raised in front of him, elbows cocked, ready to take on all comers. Everyone else in the room learnt, leaned away from him. Now, he said, whenever you try to block someone, you commit, and then you react to your commitment. The secret is not to commit, but to make them commit to you. Waltz with them. Usher them into your area. He began a movement that looked like a heavy-set man who had started to pant, waltzing in a ballroom. Moose watched him, emitting a burst of laughter. Colonel Stevers, Stevens walked into the room, having heard the shuffle of Moore's feet. The colonel had an excellent posture and exceedingly alert eyes for a man of 80. He looks trim and fit and ready to start barking orders. He favors red and green plaid pants. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> red and green plaid pants. After studying more for several moments, he shook his head and said, What the hell is this? A blocking demonstration, we said. Go back to work. Yeah, Moore said, still pirouetting around the desk. I'm showing him how to lure your man into your area. Jeez, the colonel said. Yeah, some people what time it is, and they make y'all watch. Go on, Moose said, but Stevens didn't budge. Moore had stopped dancing, and everyone stared at him to see what he would do next. Okay, he said. Now, once the man is in your area, give him a shot. He lifted an elbow and jabbed it outward, driving home the point. Moose drew on a cigar and applauded. The colonel was rubbing his jaw. Moore looked around and blushed, as if suddenly remembering where he was. Well, that's the way I taught it, he said. You sure did, Colonel Stevens said. We were almost never sacked, Moore said, taking his seat and wiping his brow. The room became quiet, except for Moore, catching his breath, the color slowly leaving his cheeks. Arrow was ambidextrous, he said. He could play the piano by ear. He's the only guy I ever saw who wrote meticulous notes to himself so he could improve himself in whatever he was doing. Every time he went out and jogged, he came back in and wrote down how far he'd run. He had to have a record of what he accomplished that day. Only once did I ever see him display emotion. He was a very strong man physically and mentally. But in our first home game in 1974, his last year at Notre Dame, he gave the players a little talk before they left the locker room. After he finished, he turned around and choked up. You could see how much leaving the school meant to him. A leader doesn't do these things in front of people he's leading. There was always a tremendous amount of pressure on him, and he finally showed it. But that's the only time I ever saw him cry. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chapter 14, Era's Men. Moose's difficulties at home brought him and Parsegian closer. When the older man talks about the younger one, you occasionally hear some of the things that Parsegian's former players mention about him. 
Era was strong for him. Era listened. Era was stern. In a way that sometimes happens in families. When Moose's life had begun to disintegrate into despair and alcohol, Era temporarily became the parent and Moose the child. Things eventually straightened out and both men could return to their favorite subject, football. Defensive tackle Mike McCoy played for Procedion from 1967 to 1969. At six, six feet five and 275 pounds, he was big by any standard. In his senior year, he was voted an All-American. I was recruited by Penn State, Syracuse, and Indiana. But when I met Era, I knew I wanted to come to another name. He didn't go out and recruit you. Although he would make a telephone call, you came to him in South Bend. He felt if he left for one player, he'd have to leave for all of them, and he didn't want to do that. He was very straightforward with me and didn't butter me up. He said I would be like every other student at the university, and I liked his forthrightness a lot. I was the first freshman to sign that year. His practices were very tough, but we got a lot done. They were incredibly well organized, and when the horn blew, you went on to the next thing. At the end of training camp, each year we would do skits to lighten things up. I remember one of them that depicted Era at home blowing his whistle for the members of his family, telling his wife and kids to get out of bed, do the dishes, clean up their rooms, or whatever had to be done around the house. It was pretty funny. He's a very emotional man, so emotional that sometimes during his halftime speeches his gum would fly out of his mouth. When I was a sophomore and starting my first game, I was scared out of my mind. Right before kickoff, he came up and touched my shoulder and said I was going to be all right. It's amazing how little things like that can help you, but it did. Just that one moment and knowing when somebody needs something. That's the intangible part of coaching, recognizing that kids get afraid. We had some great players in those teams. Alan Page, Bob Kuchenberg, Joe Theismann. When I came to Notre Dame, we couldn't go to bowl games. My senior year was the first time the university allowed us to, and Era let us vote on whether or not we wanted to go to the Cotton Bowl. We all wanted to, but then we got beat by Texas. The strange thing about Era was that he was better to us as individuals after losses than after the wins. When we lost, he paid attention to you and didn't tell you, didn't tell you what you needed to do next time. But if we won, he didn't say very much because he was worried about us becoming overconfident. He would mov- motivate the team by calling upon the whole history and tradition of Notre Dame. What we were about to do that day on the field would be reflected for years and years to come, even though we might not realize it at the time. We weren't just playing our opponent, but also against the previous Notre Dame teams and for our place in the history of the school's football program. Notre Dame itself was also very motivational. If you couldn't get up for playing there, forget it. The important thing was that the expectations were very high, and because of this, a lot of people rose to that next level. That's what stayed with me. If those around you expect you to perform, it makes a difference. In the late 60s, Bob Kuchenberg started on the Irish defensive line that went on to play for the Miami Dolphins in the early 70s, Super Bowl years for that franchise. His pro coach was Don Shula. When I remember era, Kuchenberg says, I see that mane of dark hair flowing around him and that Notre Dame sweater he always wore. He had charisma, dynamicism. He was big on speeches in the locker room, and he could get you to listen. The first time I heard Don Shula give a pregame speech, I kept waiting for the crescendo, and it never came. I just stood there anticipating something more while everybody else filed out of the locker room. Over the past four decades, sports columnist Joe Doyle has watched countless Irish practices before returning to his office at the South Bend Tribune to write about them. Era was always threatening to boot someone in the butt with a size nine and a half shoe, he says. One day in 1968, his fullback, Ron Dushney, kept missing a block on an outside sweep. Era watched this several times and finally called timeout. He came down from the tower where he watched the practices and walked up to Dushney. Turn around, he said, and bend over. 
The fullback did, and it Era administered a swift kick to the rear. Then he climbed back up the tower. Dushney didn't miss that block again. The rest of the season, when anyone on the team made a bad mistake in practice, they would back up to the tower with their buttocks exposed, as if to say, give me that kick, coach. I screwed up. Aaron never had to come down again for that reason. The lesson had been learned. In the early 60s, Brian Bolek played offensive and defensive end at Notre Dame under Joe Kuerick. And in several, <laughs> and in the 70s, he coached those positions under Percy Jean and Dana Vine. Currently the assistant athletic director of the university, Bullock is a huge man with broad chest and shoulders. He still looks ready to go. It was amazing to watch Eric call a game, he says. He was way ahead of his time. In the mid-60s, he used that spy in the sky. Notre Dame had its own TV monitor that moved along with him on the sidelines during a game and shot down onto the field. He would send in a play, and then he would tell us to watch one part of the action on the TV screen, either one blocking assignment or maybe the pass coverage. So we watched the coverage from this angle and see things that you couldn't see standing on the sidelines. The NCAA eventually outlawed this, but it helped a lot when it was legal. Every year, Era would start over and start anew with the strategy. New words, new plays, new options, new sequences of plays that he was calling, new patterns, new twists. During the season, we'd work from 7 a.m. till 1 in the morning, but near the end of the year, we might get to go home at 9, says Moose. In the offseason, I always tell Era to go out of here, get away, take a vacation, get some sun. Next week, he'd be right back in his office studying film, planning for the next year. I could never get him to rest. Arrow was great at psyching people, says Joe Doyle, motivating them even when they didn't realize he was doing it. In his first spring practices in 1964, he was determined that his offense would learn to use the clock wisely before halftime or at the end of the game. The previous Notre Dame coach came out of pro football, but he never taught the two-minute drill. At practice, Arrow would place the ball on the 40-yard line and tell the team, you got two minutes left. Um, excuse me, you have two minutes left and three timeouts. Let's see you score. He called for sideline passes, out-of-bound runs, things like that. He controlled the clock with a stopwatch. One afternoon, he told the defenses not to hit very hard. The first-string offense scored seven times in two minutes. For that last score, he put the ball on the 15-yard line and said there's one second left to kick a field goal. Then he kicked it himself through the uprights. Four touchdowns and three field goals in two minutes. Of course, what he didn't tell them was that he added two or three minutes to the clock while they were running this drill. He wanted the players to believe they could accomplish this all in two minutes if they had to. Back then, there were no injury timeouts, and Era made his players so aware of conserving timeouts that they would literally crawl to the sidelines when they got hurt rather than call timeout. He's a total fanatic about this. The team went all the way through the 1964-1965 seasons without calling an injury timeout. Against Oklahoma in 1966, Jim Seymour went up for a pass in the end zone and came down wrong on his ankle. He sprained it so badly he couldn't go to the bench. Someone finally called it for a timeout. The sprain was so severe that Seymour missed the next two games. Says Brian Bullock, We had some characters in the 60s. Ron Dushney and Bob Gladeau. Oh boy, I had to make sure they were all going to class in the mornings. I'd go over to where they lived, wake them up, and walk them to their classrooms. They were probably back to their dorms sleeping before I got back to the office. Air was the most intense competitor I've ever been around. You should have seen him play handball with Ang Stram. I've never seen such vicious games. Stram would come here to play with him, and both men were pretty good and both hated to lose. At the end of the game, Stram's back would look like someone had taken a bullwhip to it. Air was very approachable, although he gave the illusion of being standoffish. The late 60s and early 70s was a tough time at colleges. There was a lot going on in terms of protests over Vietnam 
and other changes, and he had to evaluate how he was handling the kids. He was able to look at himself and make some adjustments. Now, every coach could do that. The kids started wearing long hair <clears throat> and questioning authority, and Eris sensed that it was time to keep his door open for them to talk about things other than football. His morning meetings with his coaches started at 7 a.m. sharp, and the first half of, the, of them might be devoted to what was happening in the world. By 7 o'clock, he read several newspapers and was ready to talk about the headlines. He expected you to be well-informed and able to discuss the issues with him. In 1969, nice, he let the players vote on whether they wanted to start playing in bowl games again, and they voted to do this. But in 1971, they voted not to go to the Gator Bowl. This hurt Era tremendously because he pushed for it, but he accepted their vote. After the players rejected this, they went in and explained their decision to him. They respected him enough to do this, and he tried to understand their point of view. After that year, there were no more team voting. We went to bowl games that the university asked us to. The 1975 Orange Bowl was Era's last game and the best one of all. He knew he was leaving, and he was so relaxed, he went down to Florida and he let his kids go, gave them more free time. He was drawing plays in the sand on the beach and laughing and having fun. The kids responded to this, and we beat Bear Bryant's number one ranked Alabama team, 13 to 11. Bear came to our locker room after the game and said to Era, I want to live long enough to beat you. He never did. Era was a good recruiter, but wouldn't leave his office to do it. He passed on a number of players because he didn't like the feeling of being with them. He could intimidate people. He had an aura. If a young man didn't respect his mother... Era had a way of finding that out. And there we have it. <clears throat> so hopefully my uh, voice didn't uh, drive you into insanity there <laughs> uh, over the co- course of all that. And we will pick it back up the next time. So I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, this Going up on Memorial Day, I suppose. Maybe you got uh, some little bit of outdoor work to do. Maybe you're grilling. Maybe you're out on the boat. Whatever it is, hopefully this uh, this little bit kind of kind of give you a little you know little Notre Dame joy while you're uh, while you're doing all that. So thanks again. Please uh, just a reminder for everyone to we looking for ratings and reviews. <laughs> if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we will read that review on our next OFD podcast. And as a matter of fact, our next OFD podcast is going to be recorded on Monday night, and it's a it's all a big Q&A. Uh, pretty much anything goes. Ask us anything. Uh, Notre Dame related, food related, clothes. Hell, I don't even know. <laughs> Snowblowers, whatever you got. Uh, uh, we, we're going to answer it. Um, so, and you can leave that uh, inside of your review. Leave a question. Uh, you can go to the site, One Foot Down, and, and, and there's an article up there. Um, go in the comments and you can leave that if you want. Um, but... If you don't want to ask a question, that's fine. We'll have plenty of answers uh, as the questions have been coming in uh, pretty well. So I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to listen. And as always, go Irish.